Hello, this is Into the Greenwood. I'm Rosie. And I'm Kathy. And today we are doing the story of Catherine Krakenutz, or Kate Krakenutz. Yeah, it's a really fun story and it has a lot to it. I don't think that we managed to plumb all of its depths, but we gave it a good try. Yeah, it maybe is the type of thing we could come back to again in time when we feel like we're even more practiced at pulling stories apart. Um, but for now, we hope you enjoy. Once upon a time there was a king and a queen, as in many lands have been. The king had a daughter, Anne, and the queen had one named Kate. But Anne was far bonnier than the queen's daughter, though they loved one another like real sisters. The queen was jealous of the king's daughter being bonnier than her own, and cast about to spoil her beauty. So she took counsel of the henwife, who told her to send the lassie to her next morning, fasting. So next morning early, the queen said to Anne, Go, my dear, to the henwife in the glen, and ask her for some eggs. So Anne set out, but as she passed through the kitchen she saw a crust, and she took and munched it as she went along. When she came to the henwives she asked for eggs, as she had been told to do. The henwife said to her, Lift the lid off that pot there and see. The lassie did so, but nothing happened. Go home to your minnie and tell her to keep her larder door better locked, said the henwife. So she went home to the queen and told her what the henwife had said. The queen knew from this that the lassie had had something to eat, so watched the next morning and sent her away fasting. But the princess saw some country folk picking peas by the roadside, and being very kind, she spoke to them and took a handful of the peas, which she ate, by the way. When she came to the henwives, the henwife said, Lift the lid of the pot and you'll see. So Anne lifted the lid, but nothing happened. Then the henwife was rare angry and said to Anne, Tell your minnie the pot won't boil if the fire's away. So Anne went home and told the queen. The third day, the queen goes along with the girl herself to the henwife. Now this time, when Anne lifted the lid off the pot, off falls her own pretty head and on jumps the sheep's head. So the queen was now satisfied and went back home. Her own daughter Kate, however, took a fine linen cloth and wrapped it round her sister's head and took her by the hand and they both went out to seek their fortune. They went on and they went on and they went on till they came to a castle. Kate knocked at the door and asked for a night's lodging for herself and a sick sister. They went in and found it was a king's castle who had two sons, and one of them was sickening away to death and no one could find out what ailed him. And the curious thing was that whoever watched him at night was never seen any more. So the king had offered a peck of silver to anyone who would stop up with him. Now Katie was a very brave girl, so she offered to sit up with him. Till midnight all went well. As twelve o'clock rang, however, the sick prince rose, dressed himself, and slipped downstairs. Kate followed, but he didn't seem to notice her. The prince went to the stable, saddled his horse, called his hound, jumped into the saddle, and Kate leapt lightly up behind him. Away rode the prince and Kate through the greenwood, Kate, as they passed, plucking nuts from the trees and filling her apron with them. They rode on and on till they came to a green hill. The prince here drew bridle and spoke. 
open, open, green hill, and let the young prince in with his horse in his hand. And Kay added, and his lady behind him. Immediately the green hill opened and they passed in. The prince entered a magnificent hall, brightly lighted up, and many beautiful fairies surrounded the prince and led him off to the dance. Meanwhile, Kate, without being noticed, hid herself behind the door. There she saw the prince dancing and dancing and dancing, till he could dance no longer and fell upon a couch. Then the fairies would fan him till he could rise again and go on dancing. At last the cock crew, and the prince made all haste to get on horseback. Kate jumped up behind, and home they rode. When the morning sun rose, they came in and found Kate sitting down by the fire and cracking her nuts. Kate said the prince had had a good night, but she would not sit up another night unless she was to get a peck of gold. The second night passed as the first had done. The prince got up at midnight and rode away to the green hill in the fairy ball, and Kate went with him, gathering nuts as they rode through the forest. This time she did not watch the prince, for she knew he would dance and dance and dance. But she saw a fairy baby playing with a wand, and overheard one of the fairies say, Three strokes of that wand would make Kate's sister as bonny as she ever was. And at Cockcrow they rode home as before, and the moment Kate got home to her room she rushed and touched Anne three times with the wand, and the nasty sheep's head fell off, and she was her own pretty self again. The third night Kate consented to watch, only if she should marry the sick prince. All went on as the first two nights. This time the fairy baby was playing with a birdie. Kate heard one of the fairies say, Three bites of that birdie would make the sick prince as well as he ever was. Kate rolled all the nuts she had to the fairy baby till the birdie was dropped, and Kate put it in her apron. At Cockrow they set off again, but instead of cracking her nuts as she used to do, this time Kate plucked the feathers off and cooked the birdie. Soon there arose a very savoury smell. Oh, said the sick prince, I wish I had a bite of that birdie. So Kate gave him a bite of the birdie, and he rose up on his elbow. By and by he cried out again, Oh, if I had another bite of that birdie. So Kate gave him another bite, and he sat up on his bed. Then he said again, Oh, if I had but a third bite of that birdie. So Kate gave him a third bite, and he rose hale and strong, dressed himself, and sat down by the fire. And when the folk came in next morning, they found Kate and the young prince cracking nuts together. Meanwhile, his brother had seen Anne and had fallen in love with her, as everyone did who saw her sweet, pretty face. So the sick son married the well sister, and the well son married the sick sister, and they all lived happily and died happy, and never drank out of a dry cappy. Second, Go. I need to open my Kate Cracker notes on a scale from trying to eat your daughter's internal organs Ooh. to capturing and enslaving your son's fiance so as to create an eternal winter. Where do you place this tale? Oh, that's a fun scale. I like that one. <laughs> um, pretty dark, um, especially for a fairly light tale. Um, mm -hmm. I think because of it feeling a bit fragmented, I'm going towards the capturing the son's fiance side of things. Mm. And specifically, I think I'm getting 
murdering your sister for the husband and then your sister becoming a bone harp. That's the kind of feeling that I have, you know? That makes sense, right? Mm. Yeah, that makes sense. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I felt so. Approved, approved. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so obviously already drawing some parallels between stories that we've covered before. Yes. At least in the beginning. At least in the beginning of the story. Mm -hmm. um, it's like, it's very much classic evil stepmother behaviour. Um, um, but I felt that... I felt that this story... So there's other stories like Snow White and Gold Tree and Silver Tree and Angus and Bright where the older woman is jealous of the younger woman's beauty and it's this like um idea of what makes a woman valuable and pitting two women against each other and there's also this theme of age versus beauty and mm -hmm. age being afraid of being replaced and like by the young beautiful person yes. um and like age being inherently not beautiful and therefore not valuable and that kind of thing and in this one, it is, there is like an age versus youth thing, like you have the the queen and the henwife like being the sort of villains at the beginning. And mm -hmm. um, it is like, they're working against youth, but it's in a much more, it's like the queen is trying to live through Kate instead of wanting to be more beautiful than Anne herself. She just, like, she's trying to live through Kate, so it's kind of like, it's got the, like, it's focused on beauty and, like, making women be in competition for, like, the most beautiful, but, like, the sort of age versus youth part of it is, like, a bit more to the left. Mm. It's, like... Not it's less direct. Yes, it's in a more roundabout way. It almost feels more like the stories where the antagonism of the mother comes because she doesn't like the person that her son is going to marry, kind of thing. That's almost yeah more the feeling of it, and that it's to do maybe with the yeah. the continuation of her family, the safety of her community. Uh, status that sort of thing rather than like beauty is probably a part of it and some of the disapproval and jealousy or whatever but that's not the only thing there's yeah. a more self-protective or at least protective yeah. of your group feeling behind it i think it was so i listened to um, the podcast Tales of Britain and Ireland they have an episode on this uh, but I listened to it a while ago and I didn't listen to it for this mm -hmm. um, but I think I remember uh, they suggested um, a super kind of in-story practical reason to why the Queen is doing this and that is that if Anne becomes Queen then the current Queen and her daughter are not related to her, so they don't really have any rights. So mm -hmm. the queen has a very sort of good motivation to want her daughter to be the favoured one. Yeah. 
Yes, and especially because at the beginning we go into all of the effort of saying that Anne is the perfect princess and beautiful and kind and everything like that. She's she's already got so many benefits in a way. Um, you could easily see why that would be something that you wanted to get rid of if it was a direct threat to the safety of you and your own child who you would like to be queen so that the two of you are even more safer and more powerful and well provided for yeah yeah i do think we see with all these stories they're sort of they're illustrating the ways that like if if you just look at them through the kind of lens of beauty and not the kind of individual motivations in each story, mm. they all do kind of illustrate the ways in which having these unhealthy ideas about like the worth of women, like they just serve to pit us against each other and make villains of whoever is losing out and they rarely seem to turn against the person or force or whatever that is actually putting such value on beauty in the first place except in this one because she leaves <laughs> yeah it's it's also why in a way i wanted to draw a bit of a parallel to it feeling almost like kate plays the prince role at the beginning of the story and arguably even at the end like she's the one who rescues Anne and doesn't really care about beauty and it's just she just says yeah okay uh actually we're going to bounce I'm going to leave home and do something nicer have an adventure yeah find a better castle with better opportunities um yeah like it just it has a lot like it's got a much more hopeful slant to it in my opinion because it's just like it feels like the stepmother is kind of she's kind of like this cog in the machine of the story where mm -hmm. she's like i am evil stepmother i must do my evil stepmother <laughs> things mm -hmm. and kate is just like I'm just going to throw a spanner in this because I don't like this narrative tradition and actually we're just going to leave. Yeah. And I don't think I want to compete with my sister actually and I reject that if it's going to be at her expense. Yeah. Um, and I think that's very cool of Kate. I think Kate is very cool too. Um, yes, and it's really nice because in so many fairy tales, even true siblings, can be quite mean to each other, um, especially if mm -hmm. it's all boys. Um, the youngest, yeah. who's usually the hero, is also usually invariably fairly severely bullied, you would say. Um, mm -hmm. And obviously you have Cinderella variants where it's even just normal full siblings instead of stepsisters and things like that. So... Just the the wholesale rejection from Kate and Anne as well, saying, no, no, 
we're just mm-hmm. sisters and not only are we sisters but we actually like each other and will sacrifice for each other and help each other um yeah yeah i think it gives the story so much more of a hopeful and warm yeah. feel from day one yeah i i really like the way it's kind of saying no we're not we're not going down that path we're not going to do mm-hmm. that and like it feels it feels to me as if like this story is taking like it's taking us in a new direction it's like we're tired of that we're not doing that we're doing something different this time and I would like to like in my dreams this story kick-started like a folklore revolution where uh that became the new the new norm and Mm. spawned lots of stories like it that where everyone was very cool (laughs) and etc etc but um Mm. i don't think that happened so much but anyway (laughs) but i know what you mean the whole structure of this story and the fact that it does feel like some bits of deliberate inversions it does feel like Mm -hmm. the first time it gets told all of that's done self-consciously and intentionally which is nice Uh, it's really I think it adds an extra layer to the story that so much of this feels like it's being done on purpose instead of something that happens a bit more organically and easily and kind of part of least resistance and I think I think you could argue that if you really want to devalue beauty, then Anne should Anne should just keep her sheep's head and be happy <laughs> that way. But um, she has a sheep's head. Yeah, she's so literally a sheep's head. <laughs> I don't blame her for like, you know, in no way is staying with a sheep's head a happy ending. So. <laughs> she has a sheep's head. <laughs> yeah, it's because and beauty is so complicated and interesting but in a way if you force Anne not to regain her proper head because it's beautiful you've ruined your own moral because you've pointed out actually that this is too much of a blessing and this is too much for her to have and that beauty is too dangerous so she's not allowed it and she has to stay as a sheep she's done nothing wrong Mm -hmm. to deserve that let her have her head back you know um you what you need to say is that beauty should be treated a lot more neutrally than we do which means mm-hmm. everyone's just human and normal uh which is how the tale ends yeah so we have the henwife character type again and she's like she's at most like morally neutral but i think she's pretty evil in this story but um it's still fun to see her again i guess because uh, i like i like the character type yeah yeah i always find the henwife quite interesting yeah um. so we we had one in rashi coats and we spoke a bit about them before mm-hmm. and i do think they have this like they have this interesting thing going on where it's like their purpose like their real world purpose seems to have been to help with 
like women's problems like specifically around pregnancy and sex and but in the folk stories they're usually magic users that are kind of like they are related to like women's problems but like it's like a bit more a bit more tangential it's like it's very magical it's not like they're going there and and being like help um my period started Mm -hmm. they're going there and being like destroy her beauty hen wife (laughs) and and I think it's kind of there's this thing happening where it's like women who visit hen wives in real life can be like protected by the idea that they're just going to get eggs and then it's like this further mystery is put around the like true purpose of the hen wife by sort of when it's spoken about in folklore it's like oh it's magical reasons it's not like it's not like physical reasons or for women's issues it's magical reasons and then and not things like you know learning about their bodies or like maybe terminating a pregnancy or helping induce one it's like no it's to curse other women and then it's kind of like oh well like maybe that continues to give the real life women another level of privacy about it but it's also keeping it very mystical and it's kind of adding on to the reason that they have to go in secret for that kind of knowledge anyway it's like continuing to like demonize it and and make it weird and like as we know like this association between like women's healthcare and sorcery and evil sorcery and then that and then women who live alone and this feeling of shame and secrecy like we all know that at some point in history we stopped being cool with that and we got pretty burny about it yeah yeah witch trials is always an like it's quite an interesting a piece of context around these folk tales and how you have a henwife who's clearly a stand-in for a witch but she's mm-hmm. safer and she's in the community and you know maybe it is just eggs that she has and that people go to her for um, just normal chicken eggs um, she's not really a threat um, I think the thing is that there will always be certain types of knowledge and this is the case across every single culture and religion and geographical location knowledge like this is always thought of as quite secret and quite mystical mm-hmm. the creation of life is always thought of as secret and mystical and intimate and I don't think that that's wrong obviously if you take the sorcery too far and you start burning people we've we've clearly crossed some serious lines Mm -hmm. yeah but there are some things that are supposed to be set apart you know yeah I mean I think it depends it's like Um, it it makes sense that it should be mystical, mm. 
and it makes sense why it would be and why it would be something treated with a kind of reverence but it's also um I think it can it, like you said it can go too far and I think I think it goes too far when it makes women's bodies like mystical instead of a physical reality that we have to live with mm. and and it's like you don't want you know it's like I guess it's like I like the idea of the henwife and having that person that people could go to for that kind of help and that kind of knowledge and be like I don't have to be embarrassed because I'm just here to get eggs, it's fine. But you also don't want them to feel like they... that knowledge about their body that they have to like just live with on a daily basis is kind of... to get knowledge just about basic things about their body they have to like pretend that they're doing something else and like go and visit the henwife and then maybe if they go and visit the henwife people will think they're doing sorcery when really they're just like, why, why is my period stopped? Yeah, that's the thing. There's always so much social context that we just can't really access from this point in time. Um, yeah. Knowledge is so much more readily available to us now it becomes strange to try and consider what it would be like if it wasn't so easy to buy period products literally in the supermarket everywhere you go um yeah painkillers if you have bad ones whatever yeah and i you know it is an important thing to try and and consider how did people live with just those normal changes that happen in your body and the development of that and the understandable concern I think that lots of girls feel that all of a sudden things are very different and they feel very vulnerable and there's a lot of responsibility and just actual physical pain and blood than there was you need yeah. that elder support and that community and it's not something you can do without. So, yeah. Yeah, there is certainly a problem with saying some knowledge is... with making it too hard to access. Yeah. But yeah, it's that kind of vibe of the henwife that makes me wonder if she just, like... She doesn't particularly care what she does mm. in the story it's just she will help whoever happens to ask for help first yeah like i mean we don't know maybe she's like really loyal to the queen but i feel like if anne asked for help first and was like can you please like kill my stepmother the henwife would be like yeah sure <laughs> yeah oh yes definitely the feeling that they always have is that they have no allegiance in a way. Yeah. Um, 
they're there and in the community and anyone can approach. But there doesn't seem to be anything off the table for them. And like you say, it's just whoever gets there first. And they're quite as happy to help mm. or hurt someone else. Uh, yeah. Yeah. They're always an interesting character. And I, I have to say, yeah. I was wondering even... So, the way that Anne gets her sheep head back mm -hmm. is that just there's... I don't remember exactly, actually. Is it the fairy baby or is it just that she hears the fairies talking and they say, you know, um, that wand would get rid of the sheep's head. Um, yeah. I yeah. guess in a way it doesn't really matter. Um, because the point is just there's no reason she should overhear that or anyone should know that to tell her. I think it's also mm -hmm. fairly traditional that you... Um, you end up hearing that the people who can break the curse is the person who put it on them. That's sometimes something that you hear. Mm. So, yeah, no, so I've just had a, a scroll. And the one that I've found, at least, is it just says, one of the beautiful maidens passed. And looking at the wand, said in a meaning tone, three strokes of that would give Catherine's sister back her pretty face. Mm -hmm. maybe the henwife is also just here in fairyland maybe she's mm. hanging out maybe she's giving yeah. out plot advice to just neutralize everything um yeah because she yeah because it was mm -hmm. an oddly convenient plot point and the kind of most the most I kind of made it made of it is is it just like they're fairies, so they make it their business to know anything weird that happens. And yes, they just had a little discussion where they were like, "Oh, did you see that girl who got her head chopped off and like a <laughs> sheep's head put in its place?" And they're like, "No, did you do that? Yeah. No, I didn't do that. Did you do that? No, I heard it was a henwife. Yeah. Well, you know what would fix that? Yeah. Three strokes of that wand. You know that henwife magic." Like, that was the most I could, like, get to. I was like, I don't know why they know this. Yeah, no, I mean, I hadn't thought about it either. It was literally just there as we were talking. Um, but it... Yeah. I don't know, it's then a fun thing to play around with. Because this henwife is clearly someone who stands on the boundary between the magical and the human world. Yes. So... Yeah. Maybe she's kind of running around both sides and giving out all of this information in an incredibly confusing, um, <laughs> complicated mm -hmm. and counterintuitive way because she ends up working against the, the things that she did in the past. Yeah, I mean, that would make sense to me. I think she's the kind of person that does things just for... Just for the hell of it, really. Well, that's the thing. The Henworth characters do always feel like they just do it and see what happens. Um, mm -hmm. yeah. So we get like the classic rule of three for the attempts at the spell. Mm -hmm. And uh, I have like a, I have a little to say on the spell and I have some more later, but and I'm sure that there's like stuff to go into about her eating bread and eating peas and things mm. but I kind of think that the 
practical story purpose of there being three, of, of there being multiple attempts, I guess, is just that, well, it builds anticipation. Yeah. And it lets us get to know Anne as a character because she's about to have a sheep's head and just kind of lose her voice for the rest of the story. Yeah, she's, so. she's about to be bedbound and Kate takes mm-hmm. centre stage. So, yeah. Yeah, no, I agree, because otherwise you just don't know anything about Anne at all other than she's beautiful and nice, people say. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. And then it was I was just kind of wondering, well, why why is it a sheep's head? Why why is she made ugly in this way? And that got me kind of thinking about the um how magic works in this story. Um and it's kind of it seems to me like Anne is an extremely trusting character she doesn't really question people she just follows along with whatever they tell her to do mm-hmm. like a sheep <laughs> and yeah. maybe the henwife spell just reveals something about her true nature yeah. and like i kind of felt that she doesn't really grow from this um because she just kind of follows kate through the story and then once she's cured of the sheep's head, she marries the first man who wants her. Mm-hmm. And, you know, but that's okay, Anne. Like, we can't all be Kate. <laughs> you seem like a very nice person. So, that's fine. That's <laughs> fine. You do. Um, so, yeah, I think maybe the way magic works in this story, there's something about the henwife has to work with what she already has. She can't just transform people at will she can't just decide what she wants to do Mm. she can only reveal something that's already true yes because it does it's again this whole not quite a witch it does feel like there's a certain step down in power um Mm -hmm. and that the spell will only work if Anne hasn't eaten anything there's some clear limitations um so I do like that idea mm-hmm. yeah I was just gonna say the um the trans the, the, the transformation is very gross I'm like mm-hmm. it's like yeah. it grows it's visceral her head falls off and um and then this the sheep's head jumps on top again and I had a couple of things to say about that um partly was the way that um, she's turned back into a human at the end, it says this, like in the version that I read out, it says the sheep head falls off and then she's just herself again. Oh. Um, uh-huh. And the way that it was like way more gross and visceral at the start with her head falling off and the sheep's head jumping on top um, and it being a bit more magical at the end with her just the sheep the sheep head comes off and she's herself again Mm. um it kind of reminded me of the way um we tend to treat like werewolf transformations in um Mm. Mm -hmm. media today where when the person is turning into the werewolf it's like horrific and there's claws bursting out of them and they're screaming but when they turn back into a human they tend to just 
like fade out into a human. Yeah, they collapse and wake up as a human or something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I wonder if it's this idea of the fact that it's easier to go back to what your true self is, kind of the laws of nature are already working with you. Um, yeah. The transformation isn't wrong. Um, it's yeah. It's getting back on track, kind of thing. Yeah, and it's kind of like it's not. Even if like practically, it doesn't really make sense. If you want like a really like hard, sensical magic system, it doesn't make sense. But it's kind of like this second transformation is not a traumatic thing. It's not traumatic to become your true self again. Yes. Yeah, which is very reassuring um, to have the story mechanic. Um, But I do find it interesting that most of the stories make a point of saying that they take the real head with them when they leave. Mm. And then we don't talk about it again, though the wand is enough. That's we don't seem mm. to need the head, even though it's there, which is kind of weird. But again, yeah. if we're trying to get rid of the more graphic images, um, yeah, then you can just kind of assume that that was useful without putting too much detail into it. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I also thought it was. I think the way it happens is quite, I think what's quite counterintuitive to us nowadays is that um, her soul and her consciousness seems to be stored in her body and not in her head. Mm-hmm. And like, I guess I was thinking of, and I think they talked about this on that podcast that I mentioned earlier as well, um, Tales of Britain and Ireland, but I was also thinking about how today when we have headless characters who have magically survived a decapitation, the head is always, like, the person, and then there's always, like, a joke about the, bo- the body kind of bumbling around and yeah. the head trying to, like direct the body to reunite them or something Mm -hmm. like that's the kind of way that we seem to deal with that now whereas the person stays in the decapitated head um but in this one even though her head is totally replaced by a sheep uh she's still her and her is in her body yeah she's still self-aware she tries to hide the sheep's head she is able to talk to her sister. Um, she still knows everything that's going on. Um, yeah. I suppose we don't... It doesn't technically say that it doesn't come from her real head in the basket, but I think it's implied not to. Um, mm-hmm. Which is a very yeah. interesting difference. It would point to something maybe more... Even more inherent than just thinking that you are in your head and in your brain rather than actually in your whole body. To move on in the story, I feel like Kate is like very obviously Anne's opposite. She 
doesn't go along with what anyone else wants her to do. She very much carves her own path and um, yeah, my notes are very jumbled and like <laughs> train of thoughty, but I guess like I have a little thing kind of wondering whether it's part of the nature of her character that means she was able to escape the fairies while the other people presumably were pulled into the dancing like the prince. Mm. It's because Kate doesn't go along with what anyone else wants her to do, ever. <laughs> no, she's... In fact, her first major act is leaving. She shows <laughs> that she's very consistently very ready to leave bad places. Um, mm -hmm. They don't really seem to have any power over her. Which is then very interesting that she's described with kind of a soft voice and being gentle and someone who everyone thinks, yeah, should be a good nurse for yeah. our sick prince. Um, yeah. So, like, I have some more things on Kate's character, but mm -hmm. as a side note, before we go on, um, says in some versions of the story that the king was offering a peck of silver um, to, like, sit up with the prince. Mm -hmm. I, did a, I did a quick bit of googling, and I found that a peck of silver is about 230 grams of silver. Wow. Um, and I was like, well, what was that worth? And I found that in Anglo-Saxon England, it could get you maybe a female slave, but not a male slave. Okay. It might just about stretch to get you a horse. Okay. It could easily get you an untrained hunting dog, or maybe 13 virgin swarms of bees. Um... So, in Anglo-Saxon times, a peck of silver would be worth about £3,000 today. Wow. Um, but obviously this story isn't really grounded in a particular time period, so we don't really know. But, like, I just thought it was nice to have some vague idea of what a peck of silver might be worth. <laughs> yes, definitely. I mean, oh, £3,000 just for, theoretically, a night of simple nursing. Not bad. Yeah, good deal. It's not bad. And then I didn't, I didn't go on and look up what a peck of gold was worth, but we can assume quite a lot. Yeah. So. Yes, definitely. Yeah. Presumably. Um, yeah, I do find it yeah. interesting that she seems to be able, like, on the last night, she says, "Okay, but this time I get to marry him." Okay. Um, and some of them, yeah, I just love that. Uh, <laughs> negotiating wages. Yeah. Uh. Go for this. I love, I love the way she just she shows her worth. She's like, look, I made it through the night. Give me more money. Look, I did it again. Let me marry him. She just shows her worth, and then she demands a pay rise <laughs> and like such a pay rise. It's so much gold uh -huh. to silver. No, silver to gold. Fair enough. Yeah, gold to um literally the next queen. That's a big step. Um, I love the confidence. Yeah. She really strikes me as a character that kind of knows that she's in a story. Mm-hmm. Like... Yes. You know, it's like, first she's like, I don't really want to be in, like, the evil stepmother Snow White Cinderella story, so I'm just gonna leave. Yeah. We are going. We're, we're off. And then now she seems to have this, like... It's like she hasn't... She just kind of knows that helping the, the prince is going to solve all their problems. 
And to be fair, it's like a pretty good bet that helping royalty will help you. Mm -hmm. But I just think it's like so bold of her to be like, oh, everyone else who's watched him has disappeared. But not me. I'm different. Not me. This is going to solve everything. <laughs> yes. Definitely. And that, again, she says, mm -hmm. no, no, I know it would be bad to stay in the fairy realm. And also I can work out what the password is to get there in the first place. And it's no problem. Um, mm -hmm. And I know that the right thing for me to do is say, okay, and my next reward is the hand of the prince in marriage. Thank you. It, it does feel, as we've kind of said, this feels kind of self-conscious. She knows what she should be doing next. It is a really common belief in folklore across the world that fairies will take people dancing at night and leave them exhausted and wasting away by day. And it's like generally thought that this is an explanation for tuberculosis, mm -hmm. um, which was historically called consumption, um, due to like the fact that the person loses a lot of weight and muscle mass, so it looks like they're being consumed. And that's kind of this this is the same thing about the disease that led people in other parts of the world to think that it was caused by people getting fed on by vampires during their sleep. But yeah, I just thought it was interesting. Just like fun to see it here and just wanted to note that it was a common belief and also I think it's kind of, if that's the interpretation of it, it's like kind of interesting that sitting with him, if the people who sit with him also fall prey to the fairies so it's kind of like it's like if this is actually an illness it's like they almost know that proximity puts you in danger of falling prey to it too they, they almost know it <laughs> yes they know there's something to do with it being contagious which I think people are usually aware of. We have an instinctive aversion yeah. to sickness, and that's very much a self-preservation uh, impulse. Yeah, stay away from it and not catch it. But yeah, it's an Definitely. interesting thread running in the background. And then I was kind of just kind of trying to just sort of find ways to explain in the story why Kate would do this and I was like well this is a really common belief maybe she's heard of it happening mm. to other people and she guesses that he's dancing with the fairies and she thinks oh fairies will solve my problems maybe that's why she does it but <laughs> there's not much evidence that she like I don't know she seems like she knows what she's doing I don't know how she knows what she's doing but she does yeah this is the thing she kind of seems to know that and then things happen, and the narration usually bothers to say, uh, you know, she kind of unexpectedly, or this uh, surprising thing, there's fairies all of a sudden. And yeah, it's like we alternate between some kind of meta knowledge then oh but the appropriate emotional response to the hill is now open and we're in the fairy ballroom would be surprise and shock so she'll have that response mm -hmm. too um, 
I think maybe that's why it feels actually like a bit of a disjointed story overall. Um, yeah. And we're not sure does... how far we want to go with her knowledge. Yeah. It, it feels like she knows she's in a folktale to some extent because... Because of the way that other characters are sort of baffled by his illness. Mm. But she seems to know exactly what to do. But then, like you said, she's still like, oh, wow, fairies. Like. <laughs> yeah. Oh, wow, fairies. But I'm. So then she's like gathering the nuts. And she's just like, they're just writing. And she's like, huh, nuts. For reasons not stated, I'm just going to have those because, you know, it's a surprise tool that will come in handy <laughs> later. Like <laughs> absolutely, and also clearly, oh yeah, this uh, this baby fairy that lives in the wood. Bet that he hasn't seen nuts before that I picked right outside of his doorstep. There's no reason that should work. But, yeah, you know, um, other than you know, babies are inherently curious, so fair enough. But that's the kind of thing. If you were confronted with that problem in a video game. You would try so many different tools before you tried rolling nuts yeah. along to get the wand. You just would. And we're trained yeah. to try and solve those puzzles to a degree, culturally. I was also wondering if part of the reason that she's able to like go in there and just not be noticed when presumably all the people that went in before her were noticed... Mm. Slash, maybe they were just stupid and they just were like, oh, yay, and learned to dance as well. I don't know. Um, but, yeah, in the version I read, she um, announces herself. Like, when the prince kind of says, it's me, let me in. Uh, she, it's, it's me and my dog and my horse. And she's like, and his lady. Mm -hmm. And it kind of... You know, it's another example of her just knowing what to do. Yes. Um, and it also kind of read to me is that she kind of writes herself into the spell. And as a result, they don't register her as an intruder. Yes. And I also... It's a way almost of giving her a right to be there. She's his lady. Mm -hmm. She's his dancing partner. Um, mm -hmm. Like you say, she's under his same spell she's not she's not a foreign object she's supposed to be there still because they're all a unit yeah yeah i quite i quite like about this story um i don't know if i'm like skipping ahead a bit but mm -hmm. My notes are very jumbled. Um, so, like, it's like an inversion of Sleeping Beauty where, well, it's like an inversion of the nicer versions of Sleeping Beauty. Yeah. Uh, where the princess is the one to wake the sleeping prince and she gets to marry him as a reward. And I just think that's neat. <laughs> I just think that that's neat. Yeah. No, I know, I think... We like it if stories end well, obviously. Um, that's the appropriate social response and normal emotional response. 
<laughs> and obviously I think we like that the most if we feel like the protagonist has done something to be worthy of it. And I think we can all mm -hmm. agree that rescuing someone, it's fairly good ra grounds for feeling like you would develop a relationship and fall in love with each other. It's quite a strong beginning. Yeah. Shows a lot it's about pretty, the two. Pretty people. strong. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Very swoon worthy from the other side. Um, very noble and uh, mm -hmm. altruistic. So it just, yeah. it's nice. It's a good story. Yeah. I mean, it, it does remind me a bit of, of Tamlin and Janet. Mm -hmm. Partly because Janet is a similarly driven character who just kind of does her own thing. And also because she saves her guy from the fairies. Yeah. It is interesting. I've seen other people parallel this story with the Twelve Dancing Princesses as well. Um, mm -hmm. But in terms of endings, that one's a lot less comfortable because the whole point is that the princesses want to be off doing their dancing. And then the mm -hmm. the soldier who manages to find out that what they're doing is going basically to an underground fairy kingdom and dancing is just allowed to pick whichever one he wants to marry when he rats them out to their dad. Mm. Which, obviously, not as resoundingly positive um, yeah. as Kate Krakenitz. Um, and honestly, I don't think it works very well as a parallel either. So it just mm. that was kind of annoying me. The only parallel yeah. is underground fairy dancing. And that's, you know, yeah. it's relevant, but yeah, I wasn't convinced. No. But there's, there's like multiple things that I'm kind of like, there's like multiple little readings that I'm wondering about, about the way that she wakes him up. Mm -hmm. So it's like... I have a few um, little thoughts, so we can like go through them. But um, so firstly, comparing it to Sleeping Beauty. In Sleeping Beauty, in the nice version versions where nothing bad happens to her while she's asleep and she's just woken up by a kiss, um, it's like the kiss, the kind of initiation of a romantic relationship. Or that is what wakes her up. Mm -hmm. And then in the same way I was like, is there something here where um, she's performing what would be considered a kind of wifely duty and that she's cooking for him um, that somehow breaks the spell that then leads to their marriage? And then the next thing I thought was... There's something here about being lost in a dream world and being pulled back by the physical reality of food. Mm -hmm. And then that kind of got me on to... It's interesting that Anne's curse is initiated by depriving her of food. Yeah. And having her look in the cooking pot and the prince's curse is broken by cooking and then giving him food. Mm -hmm. And... Like, that's why Kate has to cook the bird herself. She doesn't just find the food. Because 
cooking is where magic happens in this story, basically. Cooking is what magic is. <laughs> and I guess they're both kind of spells of kind of transformation. The prince less so, but he goes from sleeping to waking. And cooking is transformative in a way. It, make, it makes things go from one thing to another. Yeah. And it's kind of... The, like the spell and the prince, it's like broken by returning him to the physical world via food. And the spell on Anne is cast by separating her from the physical world via fasting. And my then I have like two more thoughts on the bird thing and then we can like <laughs> talk about all the different things. Also, in the beginning, Anne is sent for eggs, and in the, in the end, the prince is cured by eating a bird. So there's like something in there. We know that we know that the two princes and the two princesses are mirroring each other because mm -hmm. the story draws attention to it at the very end. Yes. Um, but there's something in there where Anne starts a cycle, and the sick prince finishes the cycle. Yeah. Going from egg to bird. And. The last random thought about the bird I have is that fairy food does not usually free you from fairies. <laughs> Normally, it you it traps you there forever. Um, so then I was like, well, I guess if it, it wasn't technically food when she took it out of fairyland, she had to make it into food herself. So is it not technically fairy food? It's just a normal bird that was somehow imbued with magical tasting so good it breaks spells powers well i guess that's that's one way um yeah no i had wondered about the bird i was wondering since it's also the fairy baby that's playing with the bird who's clearly entranced by the hazelnuts that she gives it i wonder mm -hmm. if we're even trying to suggest that the bird is also just it, it, it's not a fairy bird it's also from the outside yeah. um, but it's been brought into the place of magic and is brought out and then prepared so maybe something about holding mm. on to the latent magic and having it's been through the transformation itself so it can complete the yeah. prince's transformation for him I had a few more things on this but kind of starting to bring in like the nuts as well mm -hmm. um i think there's kind of one way you can read it where the the cracking the nuts kind of grounds her like it grounds kate back in the physical world she's going in and out of theory mm -hmm. but this kind of physical repetitive task grounds her in the real world and then when the prince then does that with her afterwards, it kind of like solidifies his return to the real world because they're doing it together. Yeah. And then with that kind of reading, I feel like you could you could also read his illness as a kind of depression where he's spending all day in bed and he's not able to engage with the world around him. But Kate shows him sort of, she shows him love and attention in the form of making food for him, 
but also she has spent time trying to understand what's wrong with him. Mm. So it kind of it needs the love and attention needs to be from someone who's spent the time trying to understand what's ailing him. And once he receives that love and attention from her, he is able to engage with the real world again and he sits and cracks nuts with her and he's showing interest and then if you like try to talk about nut symbolism you could be like he's showing interest in the possibilities of life Mm -hmm. symbolized by the nut which is a seed that can grow into a great tree yeah so you you can kind of read it that way you can and it's interesting then we get a kind of parallel with the nut and the egg as well in that both of them are you know, basically potential life. Yeah. Um, with lots of yeah. nourishment or the, the potential life that they could be. Um, and it, yeah. again, highlights what you were saying of kind of Anne and the sick prince being almost mirror images of each other. Um, mm-hmm. She needs, she, well, she tries to get eggs three times and the nuts have to be used three times to rescue him, essentially. I guess there's also, like, she gets the bird and the wand from the baby. So if we're, like, carrying on this feeling of potential, you can kind of say that the baby is similar in that it's yeah. it's waiting to be, to become something. Oh, yeah, and you can even more easily, you know, there's two marriages at the end of the story. If babies yeah. are fairly usual consequence of that kind of thing uh even more so in folk tales um yeah no it's an interesting idea that maybe the fairy world is kind of a stand-in for escapism and fantasy and idealism and not being able to Mm. engage with the physical world that you're actually in yeah what it can offer you if you put the effort in you have to crack an egg to get the food you have to crack the nuts to actually get the nourishment it's not yeah. just there you have to cook the bird um, mm-hmm. you have to have an actual impact on the world that you live in to ground you in it yeah yeah and um, there's something about being willing to engage like it also seems like the way the way Kate gets the wand and the bird from the baby, she mm-hmm. doesn't just mm-hmm. steal it. She tries to engage the baby to play yeah. to play with the nuts and she engages with the baby and she gets the baby to engage with something else. Like there are other ways she could have done that, but it's the route that she takes is to get the other person to engage with the world. Yeah, it's almost relational. She almost builds a relationship mm. with the baby. Um, she mm-hmm. plays with it and shows it new things, gives it new tools to interact with the world. So, the nuts. Mm-hmm. I read a suggestion that, like, obviously I suggested that before that the nuts, and we talked about the nuts being about potential, I read a suggestion that the nuts symbolise wisdom because 
they're kind of like they look like a brain inside a skull mm-hmm. and like I'm not super super on board with that because like we've talked before people in the past had different beliefs about where wisdom was stored and different associations with body parts to wisdom and there's also I feel a bit of a direct contradiction in this story with the fact that Anne's consciousness is not in her head um but it's kind of interesting to think that if Kate is gathering the the nuts and they're about wisdom and knowledge and she's doing that where, like at the same time that Anne has literally lost her head it could be like you say I think I'm I'm less convinced because also I think we're a lot more aware of what well I was going to say we're a lot more aware of what brains look like but actually if you think about it if you had a normal village butcher, you would see sheep brain fairly often, I would guess. So maybe yeah. that's not fair. Um, but I think in a way we can overemphasize the brain in a way that yeah. past people didn't. Yeah. And it I, doesn't... I don't think... Kate kind of has sufficient wisdom, generally. That's what it feels like. Mm-hmm. It doesn't feel that she needs to be gathering more. I can see how that reading makes things it does it does like fit in with certain things but I'm just you know I feel like if you read the story as if nuts symbolize wisdom there are things that work but I'm just not convinced that the people telling this story would have seen nuts that way yeah Yeah, no, to me they feel more like the parallel with the egg and the potential and the kind of new beginning symbolised by that. So I was kind of thinking, because I was like, oh, the nuts have to be important because the story is called Kate Cracker Nuts or Catherine Cracker Nuts. Mm -hmm. Like, so I was kind of thinking, well, maybe this kind of activity is sort of what defines the story and define, like defines Kate as a character is her ability to look deeper and ask for more. You know, she wants she goes beyond the kind of hard, inedible shell of the nut and she looks for the, the nice mm-hmm. stuff inside. Mm-hmm. And it does kind of feel like she just cracks the story open and extracts what she wants from it. <laughs> Yes, in a way that clearly no one else can do. Um, I mean, mm-hmm. Anne, left to her own defences, is not running away. Uh, we know that yeah. no one's been able to follow the prince and all night and take care of him. Um, yeah. And I think you can also argue maybe some of the reasons she can leave fairy world is that she's cracking the nuts and she stays grounded in her body whether the this dancing is real or mm-hmm. if it's imagined she's not so caught up in the fantasy that she stops being aware of herself and her own physical boundaries and limitations which you can easily yeah. use as a map onto spiritual or mental limitations and boundaries 
I had a few comments on what on the way the fairies are in this story. Okay. Um, which is, I mean, it's it's a fairly fairly typical depiction of them in the. You know, I guess what I find interesting is that in Celtic folklore, there are ug- like there are ugly creatures and there's terrifying creatures and there's gruesome creatures, but the main antagonist creature is the fairy and it's almost like the thing that we find most disturbing of all is something that looks good but is actually very dangerous mm. it it seems like that's the overarching kind of concept that a lot of celtic folklore latches onto is it's really scary and compelling when things are beautiful and good and fun, but they harm you. Mm-hmm. And I think that particular aspect of fairies can, it does a little bit bolster some of the, or like one of the themes in this story, where like, um, it's kind of, the story's a little bit warning against putting too high a value on beauty and you know the stepmother did that and in trying to help her daughter she lost her Mm -hmm. and like the prince has kind of done that by being trapped in like the deadly joys of fairyland and in both cases Kate is the force that has to break that world order Mm -hmm. and you can kind of read it as if the story is suggesting that the two sick siblings, uh, Anne and the sick prince, are both, in a sense, victims of beauty. Um, so, like, I think I, I think that was a take that I read somewhere, and then from which I extrapolated that. Anne's beauty kind of leads her falling prey to the jealousy of others and um, the story is perhaps suggesting, I don't think it's a very nice thing to to suggest, but I think it's perhaps suggesting that if Anne hadn't been beautiful she would have had to learn to be wise instead like Kate and therefore she wouldn't have been easily led by others and end up with a sheep's head. So like... And her inner trusting nature, her sheep-like nature, is what is dangerous to her. Because her beauty is being valued over that. And in the same way, the prince is stuck dancing with the fairies because he's valued the beauty of the fairies and the fun of the dancing over the danger of the true nature of what's happening, which is he's dancing himself to death. Mm Mm-hmm. So there's a little, I feel like it's, I feel like the story is more pro, it's more pro-agency and wisdom and making your own way than it is anti-beauty, I think. It's more pro-things than it is anti-things, but I feel like there's, there's a little bit of that going on. Yeah, I think that's a fair theme to be considering, because you can certainly think that if Anne was 
different if she was more stubborn, if she kept on eating, refused to go to the henwife, whatever, she wouldn't get cursed. Um, mm. If she was like Kate and left immediately, she wouldn't get cursed. Um, mm-hmm. But I think yeah. I think it's fair for stories to point out that people have different characters and need different the different aspects of them will be the their flaw that they need to overcome. And it is a bit mm-hmm. much for her flaw to be that she's beautiful. That's not really a choice that you have. <laughs> um Yeah. But you can argue maybe the flaw is less that she's beautiful, but that she's fairly happy to coast with it. You know? Yeah. She's not going to put the effort into developing the other skills and the discernment that Kate might have. Yeah. But yeah. Yeah. And I I think she I think it's hard to come away from having your head turned into a sheep's head and not grow a little as a person and not yeah, you would um, imagine. feel changed. But we're also not given much evidence that she does change. Because um, like I said, she does... The, the other prince falls in love with her, so she just marries him. Yeah. Like, to me, that seems like she is just going along with what other people want. But I also think... In some ways, that's quite nice, because the story's kind of saying it's okay for Anne to be this way. We just need to make sure that people are looking out for her, and she's not going along with bad people. Yeah, and I have to see, there was uh, there was one version, at least, that I read um, that said once she has her normal head, she goes to the, the housekeeper of the castle and says... It'll, you know, you can also give me some jobs now. I'm I'm feeling a lot better because the cover story is that she mm. has a migraine. So you can argue that in that oh, yeah. one, she has a very small and arguably, if you want to be cynical, token step towards agency. Um, mm. Meaning that she's kind of... We can trust that she has learnt the things that she needs to from the sheep's head. Yes. Um, she's going to go out yeah. and start doing things a bit more easily and a bit more of her own initiative. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of... I feel like there's enough that we can assume she must have grown from it. Yeah. But I don't think a lot of the versions of the story are too interested in proving that to us, but that's okay. That's fine. <laughs> and like you say, in a way... Does she really need to? The the well prince seems yeah. to be a good man and Kate is there with her. Yeah, she's got Kate looking out for her and now her and Kate are like they're doubly sisters by marriage, so Yeah. <laughs> so why not? That's nice. And then it is I feel like cuz the story when the story says, so the sick son married the well sister and the well son married the sick sister, and it's drawing this deliberate symmetry between them, mm-hmm. to me, I feel like the implication is that if, if Kate, the um, headstrong 
sister has married the sick brother, then the sick brother must be like the sick sister, and he's also maybe quite passive. Mm-hmm. So I feel like there's a suggestion that they're well matched and they're the two couples are balancing each other out and the, Definitely. Yeah, the, mm-hmm. the two well siblings are headstrong and the two sick siblings are, are passive and, and that's okay because they balance each other out in their couples. Yeah. Yes, definitely. I think you get that. And it's nice because it means that you have all of the mirroring going on. Um, you know, within the brother and sister couplets and then within the married couplets. Um, yeah. It feels very perfectly symmetrical in the way that lots of folklore analysis tries to get to. Yeah. And there's definitely a little something about growing up and coming of age, just, mm. just a little bit, because it's kind of, it's sort of like previously the sisters with their personalities, like one sick, one well, one active, one passive, they balanced each other out. And now at the end, they're receiving that sense of wholeness and balance from a romantic relationship instead of from each other. So it is kind of that sense of growing up, of having your needs met by, instead of by your siblings and your family, having your needs met by a partner. Yeah, but it's the next natural stage in your your development. Um. So that's, that's the end of my cake cracker notes. There's still like, uh, there's still little like bits and pieces in the story that feel to me like little I guess to use an appropriate metaphor they feel they feel like little nuts that I've yet to crack Mm. um but yeah (laughs) I don't know I think because it's such a long tale there's so many different bits and pieces that you could be contrasting um I think it's probably the kind of one that needs several rereads and uh, lots of different yeah takes. For sure. Yeah. But no, I, I really like this story. Mm. I think Tamlin's always been my favourite folktale, but I would say now it goes maybe Tamlin, Kate Cracker Nuts. Mm. Interesting. Yeah, I do think mm. this one's quite high up there. I would like to do a lot more reading even now. Um, it feels like there's a lot to it. Yeah. And it's just, it feels quite fun and fresh. It does. That's for sure. Thank you for listening to the Folklore Scotland podcast. We'll be back every week with more folkloric content from stories to analysis. The podcast is brought to you by Folklore Scotland, the charity that aims to make Scottish folklore accessible using digital platforms, telling the tales of the past with the technology of today. If you'd like to become a voluntary contributor or would like to get in touch, pop us an email at info at folklorescotland.com and you can find all of our social media as well as a list of sources in the show notes below. 
The charity also now has a Ko-fi page, which you can find in the show notes if you would like to help us continue the work that we do. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>